Well, good morning, church family. Hope you're prepared for the cool front of the mid-90s we're supposedly going to have this week. Uh, probably never, I certainly don't. It's amazing when you arrive at a point where you consider the mid, the mid to high 90s a cool front and a welcome relief. That's just a crazy concept in and of itself. But uh, it's good to see you here this morning. We're, we're going to dive straight in this morning. And as we do, we need to understand as we've been walking through these seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, there, there is a dominant theme. You see it there on the screen. It is a call to overcome. We know from later on in the book of Revelation, we ultimately overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the word of our testimony, meaning as we know in faith and walk in and abide in who in Jesus is and what He's done, we, we, we find in Him, the one who has overcome all things, the ability to overcome. We are called to overcome. We're called to overcome, and the greatest danger to us as a church and us as people of God and overcoming is not the opposition from outside, but is very truly the temptation to capitulate from the inside. Now, you'll see what I mean. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 12 as we move now to the letter to the church of Pergamum. Here's what it says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who possesses the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you are dwelling, where Satan's throne is. And you are continually and presently actively holding fast and clinging to my name. And I know you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, here's, here's what he says. He says, John, you write down to the messenger, the angels of the church of Pergamum. Now, last week we saw Smyrna, the week before that Ephesus. What we're doing is we're making a circular postal route throughout modern-day Turkey. It comes in at the port of Ephesus, it moves up to the port of Smyrna, and then you cut north, and as if we were traveling north with this letter, we would, we would all of a sudden come into, we'd move away from the coast about 15 miles inland near one of the rivers. We would see a cliff face begin to rise a thousand feet off the river plain. And on the top of this cliff face is a citadel, a massive acropolis filled with temples and a, a giant altar to Zeus and, and an amphitheater, a library with over 200,000 parchment volumes. In fact, the library at Pergamum was was the greatest library of the ancient world, second only to the library of Alexandria. Interestingly enough, the, the word, our word parchment derives from the word Pergamum because of how much it was tied there. And you would look up and see this massive citadel made of white stone, this Acropolis filling out the top of the cliff face. And from a distance as we would walk up, it would look like an imposing giant throne. 
And here at the city of Pergamum, we would enter in maybe the city down below or go up to the Acropolis. We would find ourselves in the capital of the region. We would find ourselves in a city that was renowned and known for its worship of pagan deities. From Asclepius, the god of healing, whose symbol was two snakes wrapped around a stick, to the altar of Zeus, to to other gods. It was here in Pergamum some 130 years prior to this day where they set up the first of their three temples to the emperor. Here in Pergamum where the proconsul resides with the sword, the power of life and death, worship of the emperor and, and devotion to the imperial state was considered a normal patriotic duty for every member. Here in Pergamum we would find a church living, moving, and breathing in a deeply pagan world. And Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, right, I know, I know where you live. I know where you're dwelling. In fact, the place you're dwelling, and he makes an interesting statement. You saw it there twice. The place where Satan's throne is, the place where Satan is dwelling. There's a repeated emphasis there to tell all of us that they're not residing in a place where living out the Christian life is easy. In fact, if you want to say that they're residing in a place where, where maybe living out the Christian life is actually more difficult than any other. This is the place of Satan's throne. Well, what do we mean by Satan's throne? Well, we're not entirely sure. There's many things that have thrown out. Uh, some see it as a, a reference to Pergamum in general because it was such a hub of pagan worship. Some see it as referencing that giant Acropolis on top of the cliff face because it looked like a giant imposing throne. The actual altar of Zeus, which is huge, by the way, it's in the museum in Berlin. Don't think altar like a little stone table. It's a massive structure that would easily fill up a good portion of this room. It looked like a throne. You can go on down and what was there, many... It's very possible since Satan is a demon and demons have physical limitations, it may very well be for whatever reason at that moment in time, that's where Satan was was making his place, his residence on earth. Very likely it's referencing the fact of the intensity and longstanding devotion of the city and governance and people and economy and society of Pergamum to worship Rome, to worship the emperor. He says, I know where you are living and I know you're holding fast present tense, I know you are, you are presently, you are actively, you are continuously, you are making a choice to hold fast in an unwavering commitment and loyalty. You are clinging to my name. And when he says my name, remember names in the ancient world, name, the name of Jesus is symbolic for who he is, his person, his character, what he's about. When he says you're holding fast to my name, you are, you are holding fast to every ounce of who I am. Fully God and fully man, Lord, Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega, you are holding fast. And he gives an example. There was, there was a time when persecution broke out and one from among you, Antipas, who, by the way, we, we don't know who Antipas is. We have, no, we have no knowledge of who he was. What we know is he was a brother in Christ who was put to death for the faith. There is a tradition that says that shortly prior to this letter, he was, he was roasted alive inside a, an iron bull. But he said, even even when those were getting ripped out among you and being put to death, you did not deny my name. You did not deny your association with me. He says, I know. 
I see that you are holding fast. I see that you are there. I, I know they lived in a, in a place and at a time where a refusal to enthusiastically hold to emperor worship was seen as dangerous and traitorous. Surely the society there was okay with Christians doing what they wanted in their private life, but when it came to the public sphere, when it came to living out your life publicly, when it came to public worship, you better get in line. That was the message of Pergamum. And Jesus says, I know, I see you holding fast. You who live in the place where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you, you have some there among you who are actively, presently, continually holding to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So also you have some who are in the same way holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. So here's what he says. He says, I, I see you, I, the one who, who holds the two-edged sword. You'll remember that image from John chapter 1. The, the two-edged sword came out of his mouth. The sword was a symbol of authority and power in the ancient world. It represented the power, to, the authority to, to give life or to, to bring death. A sharp two-edged sword reminds our, our minds as believers of Hebrews chapter 4, the sharp two-edged sword of the Word of God, which pierces things that not even modern medicine can, can, can pierce, soul and spirit. It says, I who have all authority, I who have the right to, to judge, I who by the power of my Word possess the authority to judge, to evaluate, when I look upon your life, I see you holding fast, you, you, are, you are refusing to deny my name, but in your midst you have allowed a toleration of those who are teaching false truth. Now, not a false truth where they said Jesus isn't Lord, but a false truth that's like Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Well, what, what, what is the false truth of Balaam and the Nicolaitans? Well, let's start with Balaam. Balaam's a little easier, though stranger. Balaam is, is a reference back to Numbers, chapters 22 through 24, where Balaam, who is a prophet, the, the people of God are making their way up into the promised land, and they're about to come up to Moab. And Balaam is, is, is a prophet for the Lord, and King Balak of Moab, he does not want to lose. So he, he gets this great idea, I've got all this money, I'm going to pay Balaam to, instead of blessing the people of God, to curse them. Balaam gets the offer, Balaam decides, you know what, that's a lot of money. I'm happy to do that. And on his way to go curse the people of God, riding his donkey, his donkey proceeds to throw him off three different times. He gets really annoyed, starts, starts cursing out and hitting on the donkey, and, and God, it says, open the donkey's mouth, and the don donkey basically says, what are you doing? There is an angel standing right there with a sword to lop your head off. I just saved your life three times. And Balaam goes, oh, wow. And Balaam goes back and says to King Balak, what God has blessed, I cannot curse. And then you find in chapter 25, the people of God, they get up there to Moab, they see the women of Moab are beautiful, and all of a sudden they begin to take part in idolatrous sacrifices and, and, and feasts that, that are involving the worship of false gods. They begin to take part in sexual immorality, and, and God brings judgment amongst them. And if you just stop there, you go, well, interesting, okay, well, I guess Balak figured out. No, 
Because what Numbers 31 goes back and tells us is exactly what, what Jesus is referencing here. See, here's what Balaam did. Balaam said this to the king, I can't curse what God has blessed, but I can tell you how to destroy them from the inside out. What you need to do, you've got a lot of pretty ladies. You need to send your ladies. These people have a weakness for your ladies. And if you send your ladies amongst them, you can entice them into doing things that God has said they shouldn't do. And once they start doing those things, God will bring his judgment on them from his own hand. Hence what he says, you have some who are actively holding to the teaching of Balaam, who for the love of money and pleasure taught Balak how to place enticements, temptations, stumbling blocks to sabotage the people of God through the worship of idols and sexual immorality. Not only that, but you have those among you who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't totally know. They're mentioned twice in here in Revelation. We don't know with absolute certainty who the Nicolaitans were or what they were teaching. There's a variety of, of opinions out there. According to a church father, Irenaeus, who, who lived not too long after they, they had embraced, they actually were a heresy that came from one of the original deacons in Acts chapter 6 that that deacon began to get exposed to some false teaching and they began to believe in a heresy that believed Jesus himself was not the Christ but was just a human man upon whom the divine Christ came at baptism and left before he died. So he's not fully God and fully man, he's just a man who for a brief period had some supernatural power on him, which is blatant heresy. That's one understanding of the Nicolaitans. It's possible based on their name, which means those who conquer, that they believed in a kind of early priestly superiority of the pastor slash priest like you might see in, in the medieval Roman Catholic Church. It's possible they were teaching a form of syncretism where you could have Jesus but your culture too. Some have also speculated they were maybe early Gnostics who, who thought that the physical was bad. Now, if your head's spinning, you don't need to remember most of that. I just want you to understand I'm not trying to pull the wool over your when I say we're not 100% sure what the Nicolaitans taught. What we do know is whatever they taught was actively opposed by Jesus. Jesus complimented the Ephesian church. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, I hate their deeds too. Whatever they were teaching was leading to a lifestyle that was actively opposed to the holiness of God. So he says, this is the problem, Pergamum. Here's what's going on amongst you. You've got some people in your midst in the church who are actively, this, this is not, they've not, it's not, the issue's not that they've, they've slipped up and committed a, an act of sexual morality a time or two or that they've, they, they just got weak and they, they went to a, an, an idol feast. That they, it's not that there was a one or two time action. You've got people who are continually, presently, actively choosing to hold to a form of teaching that says you can, you can have Jesus, you can follow Jesus, you can know Jesus, and you can go up to that feast and sacrifice that meat to Zeus because you know what? It's, you know when your heart, Zeus, isn't real. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. You know, it's, it's okay. That's, that's how you want to identify and express yourself sexually. It doesn't, Jesus is okay with that. You be you. 
They've got people who are promoting those teachings, and they have done apparently nothing to correct, to expose, to recognize, reject, rebuke, and repent from those teachings. And before we go, well, wow, that's really ridiculous, understand, just in an effort to be a little bit gracious to the humanity of the, 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 those in, in Pergamum, there would have been an intense pressure if you don't go to the festival this trade guilds hold, which they're going to celebrate the patron deities, if you don't go to those feasts and, and engage in those immoral activities, if you don't participate, you're going to be kicked out of the guild. You're going to lose your economic spots. You're going to lose your job. You're going to have nothing to eat. We saw this with Smyrna last week. There are real life and death consequences that when someone coming around says, but here's how you can have Jesus and, and it not be so hard. Listen, I don't care what you package that message in. That's tempting for any of us who are facing a hard time. He says, the issue I have is you've got those who are holding to the teaching and you've not done anything to correct it, so repent, turn. And that, the, the phrasing of, of the command, repent there, it's in the strongest, most urgent way you can command someone to repent. And remember, repentance simply means I am walking this way after something. I recognize this is wrong because Jesus is right, and so I turn. I'm not just turning from something, but I'm turning from it to Jesus. He says, you need to recognize this teaching is wrong, and you need to turn. You need to repent, to turn back to me, to turn back to truth, the fullness of my truth. Therefore, repent, and notice what he says, or else. I am coming to you quickly. It implies I'm already up on the horse on my way. I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is continually saying to the churches. He says, if you don't take action, here's the reality. I am on my way, the sword of my word, which pierces everything, the sword of my word where I have all authority to give life or to take death, the sword of my word, I will come and I will actively be engaging in warfare against your church. What a frightening and horrible reality that the church of Jesus Christ would be in active warfare against Jesus Christ. Says, this is the danger. You've got some amongst you who I'm on my way to wage war with. The consequences are serious, so take action. There's no time to wait. Do not delay. See, here's the reality, church family. We have been called to overcome. It is only possible to overcome. What does it look like to overcome? How do we overcome? It's only possible to, to experience overcoming by clinging, by holding fast to the name of Jesus. But the danger when all of a sudden false teaching enters the picture, the reason Jesus who has all authority, the reason Jesus who has all might, the reason Jesus zealously is, is, is loving, zealously loving his church and seeking the, the purity of her teaching, the reason is because what you teach, what you tolerate in teaching impacts what you believe. And what you believe impacts what you do. And what you do, you will ultimately reap in one way or another. 
And what you do as a believer, you will have to give account for before Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is clear. Church, I want you to overcome. Church, I want you to hold fast to me. But if you embrace, if you tolerate, if you allow teaching that denies me, it's going to whittle you down and capitulate and you won't overcome. So church family, understand today what sits before us. We must overcome. We must overcome by holding fast to the name of Jesus as we recognize, repent, and reject false teaching. Listen, we must hold fast. Church family, here's, here's the reality. You and I are called to overcome by holding fast. If we're going to overcome, we've got to cling to who He is, His goodness, His greatness, His holiness, His righteousness, the fact that He is a God who first and foremost loves us, His people. We've got to cling to Him, that His grace is sufficient. We've got to hold fast. We are called into a, into a relationship with Jesus at salvation that is one of exclusive loyalty to who He is as He reveals Himself in His Word with no room for compromise. But we live in a world that actively opposes Him. Not only do we live in a world that actively opposes Him, we live in a world where there are real supernatural enemies that we can't see, that we don't perceive, that, that are far savvier than us that also oppose Him, all of which oppose His people. And in the midst, we're called to hold fast. You know why we're called to hold fast? You see commands throughout the New Testament. You know why you're called to hold fast? Because you're going to be tempted and discouraged to let go. Think about holding on to a bar at a carnival. If you hang on to this bar for two minutes, you win a giant stuffed animal that costs five cents to make. Hold on, hold on. Why? Because you're actively tempted. It's tiring. It's hard. Your body, your body is, is fighting against the laws of gravity. In and of itself, it's, it's, it's tempting to let go because of the challenge it is. Not only that, but imagine holding on to that bar while people are jeering you with insults, blasting a water cannon at you, making it slippery. And meanwhile, they are, they are saying, if you'll come down, we'll give you this nice warm towel and a free day at the spa. At the spa. That's why we're called to hold on, to cling to Christ, because we live in a world of active opposition. But understand, church family, we will not cling to Christ if we tolerate, if we begin to open the door and allow false teaching to creep in. How do we overcome? By holding fast. We hold fast as we recognize false teaching. We need to recognize the reality of false teaching. Not everything that is said, quote, in Jesus' name is from the Word of God. Not every pastor or church is actually a pastor or church in God's eyes. And you go, pastor, that's kind of, I'm not, I'm not giving you a conspiracy. I'm telling you what Scripture says plainly. False prophets have always been a nuisance to God's people. Not only that, but our very enemy, Satan himself, whose throne apparently was in Pergamum, Satan himself, how did he tempt Adam and Eve and how did he tempt Jesus? With the word. Misunderstood and applied. We need to understand there is a reality of false teaching. We find all sorts of false teachings in our day. There's the idolatrous gospels. 
where you can have Jesus, but you can also eat society's cake too, whether that be, oh, you can follow Jesus and go, go listen to whatever music and, and, and consume whatever movies you want. You can follow Jesus and, and just let your kids be and do and act and, and, and achieve everything the world says. You can follow, we can fill in the blank. Whatever idol of society, there's, there is somewhere you can find someone who says, you can follow Jesus and have that idol too. Idolatrous gospels, we can find prosperity gospel. Balaam sold his own people out for money. He sold the people of God out for money. We can do that too. Jesus wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. So whatever brings me health, wealth, and prosperity, that's God's will for my life. 76% of the church, by the way, in America, I said that last week, holds to some tenet of the prosperity gospel. There's prosperity gospel. Oh my goodness, there's other false teachings. There's the materialism gospel, close related, meaning anything is okay. You know what? Greed is okay as long as you're working hard. Business, what I do in business to achieve, to make money, that's separate from my Christian ethics. So this person whose company, I just, we just kind of committed some corporate sabotage to take over. It's okay because we're working hard. God likes hard work. The materialistic gospel. There's the sexual gospel. Whatever you feel in your identity, your orientation, and your sexual desire is okay. It's because it's how God made you. So just indulge and enjoy. There's the patriotism gospel, and this is true in any country. Whatever my nation wants, whatever my political party tells me is good, that's God's will. There's the liberation gospel. Pick any group of of any group that's in the minority and whatever group that's in the majority they feel opposes them, they have the right to take up radical action to remove and overthrow. And you can apply that to all sorts of different uh, distinctions, whether that be race or economics or social class, whatever you want to do. There's all sorts of different gospels like this that, that say, Jesus is Jesus and you can act this way too. And so let me just be very kind but clear this morning, especially given the specific examples of idol worship and sexual immorality, church family, any teaching you hear in person or online, in a book, on a podcast, any teaching you hear that says Jesus is okay with any idolatry, that says Jesus is okay with any friendliness or sin in the world that says Jesus is okay with any form of way you want to identify, orientate, and act sexually, anything that is okay, you can have Jesus and act this way. And by act this way, we mean that word for sexual morality, it's the word pornonia. It's a very clear word that refers to any sexual um, desire acted on in thought or deed outside of the monogamous commitment of one male and one female in the covenant of marriage. That's what that word means. Anything outside of that, the covenant of marriage between one male, one female, before God, monogamy for life. Anything outside of that, any teaching you hear that says Jesus is okay with it, can I kindly just tell you clearly today, it is false. And I say it kindly because the aim here is not to look at someone who may be in this room who's struggling, who's trying, who, who feels nervous. Listen, all of us should have sin that gets exposed as we walk with Jesus. Can we just normalize that? If you're gonna walk with Jesus, God's gonna expose sin in your life. 
and to feel shame and terror and to want to hide over it and not, and not walk into the community of the saints and say, hey, this is where I'm at and let's follow Jesus together. You encourage me, I'll encourage you. Any shame is from Satan. So the aim today is not to heap some burning coal on someone because you're struggling with something that may have been named in one of those false teachings, but it is to say that if you buy into a gospel that says your idols, your friendliness with the world, your sexuality outside of how God has designed it is okay, it is false and it is dangerous. It is dangerous. It is dangerous. Here's why. Church family, there is always going to be a great pressure to capitulate from a pure following of Jesus because it's hard to suffer. It's far easier to, to take that which, which gives ease of life. It, it's, it's a dangerous because it happens slowly, numbingly. Listen to how one writer put it. It never occurs quickly, so you hardly notice the change. It always lowers the original standards you once held important. It's seldom, it's seldom offensive because it's perceived as loving, and eventually it leads you to accept what you once rejected and even thought repulsive. It has been well said that what one generation tolerates, the next generation will accept, and what one generation accepts, the next generation will celebrate. Listen, church family, we follow. What we follow, we will believe. What we believe, we will do. What we do, we will reap and give account for. And I have no greater desire as pastor than for us to reap the fruit of God in our lives. I have no greater desire than for us as a church, as your pastor, for us when we stand before the Lord on the day of accountability that, that what we would reap is reward and not smoke because we believed and bought false teaching that promised ease in this life but led to empty promises of a spiritual cancer. What we follow, we will believe. What we believe will dictate how we know Jesus and how we walk with Him. Do you realize we only overcome by holding on to Jesus? So if I buy into false truth, ultimately what it does is it impacts my understanding of who Jesus is, and all of a sudden I will find myself not holding on to Jesus, but holding on to a lie with Jesus' name on it, a lie where in reality I'm just holding on to myself. There's all sorts of dangers, and we've seen examples play out like this all, all over the place. Go back, go back and think about the whole, well, God, God is love. Yes, God is love. Let's be clear on that. It says it, God is love. But God's love meets us and accepts us where we're at to transform us and move us and make us who we should be. It never leaves us where we're at. God does love. But there's been a movement for a lot of you. You can go back and listen to some of the great 90s contemporary Christian music. And you'll find in some of that music such an emphasis. Oh, just, just love, just love, just love, just love. And that sounds really good. But if we're not clear on what love is, love quickly gets diluted into love is just wanting to make sure that I make you feel good no matter what you've come forward with. I can't tell you how many old songs I've listened to that I've thought, wow, at that time, that made the top Christian music charts. Man, today, that kind of rings a different tune given where we've come from. Let me give you another example that maybe make you think a little different. Uh, business. Now, I have nothing wrong with business. Some of you are businessmen and women. Their business is great. 
But ministry isn't business. But it's easy to think of it like, right? Business, what do you gotta do in business? You've got, you gotta sell a product, you've gotta make money, there, there's things you track and do. Well, you've probably heard it before. Churches, we're in the business of making disciples. And so we look at it and go in business, right? If the numbers aren't increasing, it must be because we're not doing something right. So we come over here to evangelism and go, well, more and more people aren't getting saved, so there must be something we're doing wrong that more and more people aren't getting saved. Maybe, we, maybe we're talking too much on this issue. Maybe we're, maybe we're not attractional enough on this thing, and all of a sudden, what starts out as a good desire, do we wanna see people come to faith in Christ? Oh, yes, Lord, we do. But people don't come to faith in Christ at the expense of truth. And it's easy to be so driven by the number in the name of evangelism that before long, all of a sudden you go, you know what? It's really offensive in our culture to say anything outside of one male and female and a covenant of marriage is God's will for sexuality. So we're just not gonna really address that anymore. It's really offensive in, to young families to say, you know what, all the things, you, you may be overindulging your children with all these things to make them, that, that's just probably not a good way to reach young families. We come in and we say, and all of a sudden we start to water things down in the name of we've got to reach people for Jesus. And I've watched some of the churches who were big on that train two decades ago move into places today where they're still beating the horn of we wanna see people come to know Jesus, but they have completely and totally rewritten the sexual and moral ethics of the Bible. Not because they set to start out doing that, but because they were driven by a business mindset towards evangelism that says, well, if more people aren't coming to faith in Christ, we must be doing something wrong. Listen, our job isn't to figure out what means more people to come to faith in Christ. Our job is to love Jesus with all our hearts and go proclaim the gospel and let the Holy Spirit do his work. It's a danger. And when we recognize it, we need to repent, not delay. Think about it, who are we listening to? Who are we, who are we listening to? Who are we reading? Who are we watching on Instagram or TikTok? What podcasts are we consuming? What, what books do we read? What articles and magazines do we read? Who are we consuming teaching us about Jesus and his ways? And not just who, but are we taking every one of them, good and bad, back to scripture? See, here's the deal. We need to recognize the reality of false teaching. We need to recognize the danger of false teaching teaching, but in, we also need to recognize there's a way to, to recognize it. It's by knowing the Word, as you and I know the Word, as we read it, as we hear it, as we meditate on it, as we journal it, as we pray it, as we use our minds and not just our emotions. I heard a stat from a guy who's done polling of Christians for years. He said it was for decades, he worked for politicians, and all the politicians wanted the vote of the church, and he said, the church in America, more than any other group, votes off one single factor. You ready for this? The single factor that for the majority of the last several decades, going back to the 80s, that the church in America votes off of is emotion, how they emotionally feel towards a candidate. Now, I'm not trying to take it to the political side. What I'm saying is, if you're going to recognize false teaching, you won't do it by how you feel towards it. You're gonna to have to do it by the exercise of the will of your mind, by taking it captive and examining it to scripture. Listen, it doesn't feel good when God zaps me and shows me my sin, but it is good. It demands good hermeneutics, knowing how to actually study and interpret scripture 
which is biblically based and evident. We see the authors of Scripture using Scripture to inter interpret it. It's the historical precedent of how the church has understood things. And listen, there is no way you're going to do these things that's not going to invite critics. Someone's going to say, well, that's just biased to your side or that's just this. There will always be a critic to clap back. But God's Word is what it is. And the way we're going to recognize, the way we're going to repent and go, wow, hey, this is wrong. I recognize this is wrong, and I am turning back to Jesus and, what, and who and what is right, is you got to know the truth. you got to know the truth in real salvation. you got to really be saved. you got to know the truth in terms of the Word. We turn from what is wrong to turn to what is right. And here's the last part. Part of how we overcome, part of what drives us to cling fast to God, to reject, to recognize, to repent of, to reject. And by the way, in repent of, let me just say, I, I, I could have turned this sermon easily into, well, let's name names, who's this, who's that, and that just wouldn't in this setting be very helpful. If you've got questions about individuals, you can feel free to ask them. That's, that's not my aim. What my aim is this, though? Part of what repentance may look like for us is it may say, hey, I've been holding a false teaching, God, I need to repent of it. Part of it, repentance may be, you know what, Lord, I have, I have read every book by this author, but the more I examine this author, I find this author isn't in alignment with you. I need to stop reading that author's books. Repentance may look different things. We've got to recognize, we've got to repent. We've got to reject, but here's ultimately why. Because we are longing for something greater than what the ease of life false teaching can give. You see what he says here in the end? He says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is continually saying to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone and a, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. There was an, uh, in, in Jewish writings an idea that, that Jeremiah, when Babylon was coming, took the Ark of the Covenant and hid it at Mount Sinai, and inside the Ark there's a pot of manna from the days of Moses, and that when the Messiah returned, he would come and he alone would know where the Ark is, he would pull out and he would feed God's people of the satisfying provision and fulfillment of, of the heavenly food. What is it a reference to? It's saying that to the one who overcomes. There is a secret food no one in this world can offer. There is a secret provision of God that will bring more satisfaction to the fullness of your being than any false teaching could ever give. He says a white stone. No one knows for sure what the white stone is. There's a lot of ways white stones were used. White certainly symbolizes purity and holiness. Uh, white stones were given when someone was acquitted from guilt in a legal court. White stones were, were given as a, it was your token of admission, your ticket into a, a grand celebration as a citizen of a city. It was a, a, a given to a victor as a reward. There's lots of different things it symbolizes, all of which certainly are, are, are accurate for us. We have justification in Jesus Christ. We are, we are acquitted of our guilt because Jesus makes us righteous. There is a freedom from sin and bondage that we will know in full in eternity. There is a token of admission. We will come up to that heavenly city and we will not knock on the gates only to find us turned away, but we will enter into because of the blood of Christ. There is a, a vindication that when Jesus returns, every way in which the world is slandered and said, you are foolish Christian for not just giving in and bowing down, for not just accepting that false teaching. Oh, there is a vindication of victory, a white stone. 
And on that stone, it says he writes a new name no one else knows. There's lots of things about names. Names represent a person's character and nature. To know someone's true name was the idea that someone had complete authority over that person. For Jesus to give a name that is a secret known only to him and the individual speaks of an intimacy and a personalness that is unparalleled. It speaks to the fact that, that Jesus grants a new name in heaven to each of us, one only known by him because no one but him will have authority over us. It speaks to the fact that when someone was given a new name, it was a sign that their identity, their nature, their whole being had been transformed and changed, which we have in Christ. And we will have in fullness when we are fully conformed to the image of Christ and brought back into our resurrected bodies when he returns forevermore. You see, there is something greater, something more satisfying, something more fulfilling that God has promised that Jesus delights to give those who overcome. So if we're going to overcome, we've got to hold on. We've got to cling to him. If we're going to cling to him, it's going to mean recognizing false truth, repenting of it if we've embraced it and rejecting it while we long for something more than any false gospel could ever promise this side of heaven. When I was in eighth grade, we were at a youth retreat, and we did this underground church, secret church game all over, all over the, the, the campsite. It was an, uh, not camp like tents, but a, a summer camp, and all over the site outside, it was dark. And the whole goal uh, is there were going to be people along the way you'd have to encounter and talk to, and your whole goal as a group was to find the underground church. And when you got there, there would be a time of worship and prayer. But you had to be aware because along the way, there were people posing as fake Christians to arrest you. And, and there were people who were going to try to trick you and deceive you, say some stuff that sounded right at the beginning. And then next thing you know, and there was a real jail where they would interrogate people in, in this game. And so I'll never forget, I was with this one group, and we were pretty good at sniffing out the people. You know, you will run into these random adults along the way. It's, you know, dark, and we got flashlights. And we, we came out and we found, out in this clearing by a pond, we found the church. We found it. They were getting stuff started. They had their guitars. Wow, this is awesome, man. We, we won the game. We just got to go find a bunch of people and bring them here. And so we start going out. Guys, we found the church. It's right over here. Because you had to go there and get like a... Uh, like a, something from them before you go back out. So, hey, we go, you gotta go then, we gotta go. So we're just pointing people by the droves to this place. And all of a sudden, about 15 minutes goes by and we're away because we're out there being good evangelists, getting people. And we start hearing all these like screams. Because we didn't send everybody to the church. This is about the underground church. We sent them to a church that had a guitar, singing loud, bonfire. We sent them to a church that was saying some things that were true, but when they also told us some other things, they weren't totally true. We sent everybody to a false church and they all got arrested. Eventually, we were led from the error of our ways and brought to the secret church, which was in the pitch black dark in the middle of nowhere in the woods. And here's why I tell you that in relation to false truth. It would be easy to go, Pastor, you're just beating the false truth thing to death. Just like it was easy for us in that game to not take it seriously and pay attention to some of the red flags from the false church. 
And you can say, well, pastor, you ended up at the good church. You're right. And I sent dozens of people to the wrong church who were sent to prison because I didn't take seriously the use of my mind to evaluate whether it was true or not. We've got to recognize, church family, if we're going to hold on to Jesus, the reality of false teaching. Repent of it if we've bought into it and always reject it because we are longing for something far greater and more. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you in this time. You alone are good. You alone are worthy. And Lord, I praise you. There is some deceptive stuff that's out there today, but all of it is fairly easily exposed when we're really put under the magnifying glass of your word. Lord, it's nothing new. There were false gospels in the first century church. There were false gospels in the second and the third. And the there have been false gospels for the last 2,000 years of church history, and yet the truth has prevailed. Lord, because you've given us your word and you are for your truth. Your word goes out and it does not return void. And so, Lord, may we be a people who humbly respond, Holy Spirit, to your conviction. If we've bought into a false gospel, may you open our eyes and help us see that. Because there is no life in lies. Jesus, if there are any in this room or watching online that don't know you, they've not just bought into a false gospel, they have no gospel, no good news. But they understand you love them and your word is clear. There's a way for them to be saved and reconciled to you through repentance and faith by your grace. Holy Spirit, as we respond to you, you move and find us faithful. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.